Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. With me, as always, is Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and that makes this Stuff You Should Know. The podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For now. What kind of intro? I was kind of curious. And to those of you out there, I often sit with bated breath. Not often, always. And think, what's Josh got for me? Wow. I wish you hadn't just built that up because this is it's not really a particularly special. It's okay. We've done 320 plus of these, and I'd say 300 or more of them have been very interesting. <laughs> that many, huh? Sure. Oh, well. And to heck with it. Um, I'm just going to wrap on this one, okay? All right. Chuck, you remember when we went to uh, Flip Burger? Yeah. Okay, so Richard Blaze. Yes, Richard Blaze. Um, he is an excellent chef. Mm-hmm. He has not only Flip Burger Boutique here in Atlanta. I think he's got a second one that just opened or is about to open. Yeah, and he's a Richard's a Top Chef uh, guy. For uh, those he's a winner, right? No, he actually um, he's had a winning personality. Yeah, he and he will admit that he choked at, on his season because he's clearly the best chef, and he just kind of choked at the end, which is not a very Blazian thing to do. Yeah. Because he's pretty money. Well, we know a lot about choking. People send us uh, emails about them choking. Yeah, and he's now on, um, which I'm watching now, the Top Chef All Stars. Oh yeah. And uh, is he as choking? Of, well, as of now, he is. It will probably be resolved by the time this comes out. But now he's one of the top three. Okay. He's in the final three. Well, who else is on there? Uh, it's it's a lot of the second place finishers from all the years. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, tough competition. Sweet. Um. Okay. Well, I should also say to anybody out there who ever is thinking of coming to Atlanta, um, a lot of Stuff You Should Know listeners email us, right? Yeah. And they say, where should I go eat? Every single time we recommend Flip. Yeah, it's a fun place. It's awesome. But the food is just amazing. I also strongly recommend the Asabuco Burger, right? Yeah. Awesome stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Chuck, you've had the Krispy Kreme milkshake. I know you have. I've watched you <laughs> drink it, right? Yeah. Hey, did you notice when it came out, it was... Steaming. Yeah. Although it was piping cold, it was steaming. That's right. And the reason it was steaming is because Richard Blaze, as is his way, had just injected a bunch of nitrous oxide into it. Mm-hmm. And he did that to basically fluff it and, I believe, to also chill it very quickly, which are both very, um, they're hallmarkian of molecular gastronomy, which, coincidentally, is what we're podcasting about today. That's right, Josh. Molecular gastronomy, which is, uh, let's go ahead and just give a quick history here. Uh, there was a guy named, uh, well, there still is a guy. His name is uh, Hervé Tis. Yeah, he's very active still. He yeah. still has a, he has a blog and a website going. In the 1980s, he was a uh, physical chemist, and he was uh, working on a souffle in his kitchen. And it was a cheese souffle, and the recipe um, had very strict instructions, said two yolks, egg yolks at a time. Mm-hmm. He said... Eh, we'll put in four egg yolks. I'm a, I'm a chemist. Who I'm cares? I'm a chemist, and it failed uh, big time, as the souffle is, is apt to do. And he said, you know what? This is really interesting. I didn't follow those instructions, even though they're, they're, the right ingredients were, were put in the uh, recipe. And it flopped. So let me start studying this. And he started doing this with more dishes, the scientific study of food preparation, very systematic. And he said, I think I'm on to something here. I uh, partnered with a guy named Nicholas uh, Curti, who is an uh, emeritus professor. Is that too, or is that a mistake? 
Emeritus Professor Emeritus? Is that a title? I, I could see it being a title at Oxford. Okay. So he was at Oxford, and uh, he was another physical scientist, and they launched the, together molecular gastronomy. They uh, originally called it molecular and physical gastronomy, mm-hmm. and that was a very new thing at the time. This is a very new discipline in, in cooking. It was, and, and basically the, the there's kind of two bases of molecular gastronomy. It's number one, it's debunking myths. Like, there's so many old wives' tales surrounding cooking. Right. Which, like, for example, um, adding olive oil to boiling water that you're cooking pasta in. <laughs> I do that still. To separate it. It's just bunk. It is bunk. The reason why it's bunk is because oil and water don't mix. Even when you're boiling it, the oil floats at top. Yeah. The noodles are down below that, and yeah. it's doing absolutely nothing. I feel like a sucker. What you should actually do is add a little bit of vinegar, like white wine vinegar, apple right. cider vinegar, just a little bit, because that actually does keep pasta from sticking to itself. Right. And the, one of the points of molecular gastronomy is getting to the actual truth of, does something work? Yes or no. If it doesn't. We should broadcast that it doesn't work so people, you know, don't feel like chumps, right? That's right. Or waste time and, and money and effort. And if it does work, why? And why is explained on a scientific level. That's molecular gastronomy. That's right. He began looking at the physics and chemistry of the preparation of food, and he organized the first international workshop on molecular and physical gastronomy in 1992 and presented the first doctorate in that field at the University of Paris in 1996. Yeah, which is pretty huge because he created a brand new field, and within a, like a decade or yeah. so, they're handing out PhDs in it. Yeah, well, it's it didn't, substantial. Sure, it was substantial, but it didn't catch on like wildfire. It wasn't super popular at first. No, and actually, it was very um, um, shunned. Yeah, controversial, sort of. Yeah. Well, because chefs are all about cooking with the soul and cooking with love, and all of a sudden there was this guy, these two guys that were breaking it down to the molecular level and kind of taking all the fun out of it to some people's uh, in some people's opinion. Right. And and uh, as you said it's soulful, it's artistic cooking is. When you apply science to art, it loses something intangible but very important, right? Agreed. Um but on the other hand, molecular gastronomy has been able to produce things like snail porridge. Right. You want to read the quote? Uh actually I don't have that, do you? I do. Um one one eater of the snail porridge. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, wow, what just happened to me? An eater? <laughs> um, of snail porridge, uh, described it as, quote, successively savory, sweet, snaily, crunchy, and tart, ellipse, nothing less than magical. Wow. That's pretty substantial for, for snail porridge, right? Yeah. And with snail porridge, or with molecular gastronomy, you can come up with dishes like snail porridge, which no one would ever have thought of creating. Um, and you can also make it perfect, nothing less than magical, every single time. Yeah, which is, that kind of precision is good when you're a chef, because one of the keys to a successful restaurant is consistency. But early on, it got a lot of uh, criticism, because a lot of chefs didn't find it was accessible to your average home chef, and they think... <laughs> it's definitely not. Yeah, they think to be a successful uh, discipline, then... Because Julia Child, uh, for instance, she was... Uh, a, Talented cook and chef, but she didn't really hit it big till she put out that book. She was nothing. That everyone wanted in their kitchen. Right. And Chuck, while we're talking about books, we should probably give a shout out to Liz, um, who's a Stuff You Should Know listener. That's right. Um, and who runs uh, Lidabit Sweets, uh, L-I-D-D-A-B-I-T-S-W-E-E-T-S dot com. 
Yeah, we plugged her before in her awesome treats. Yeah. Yes. And I think it's been a little while since we got some chocolates, frankly. Yeah, I think it's about time for a little, uh, what's it called? Paola? Yeah. <laughs> um, she, uh, gave us, uh, Hervé Tisse's, uh, book, Molecular Gastronomy, Exploring the Science of Flavor, right? That's right. And, um, I've had it since, uh, June of last year, uh-huh. almost a year, and I've read the first entry. But we have the book, thanks to her. Yeah. And uh, she she gave us the book to kind of grease the wheels toward a molecular gastronomy podcast. So here it is. That's right. Almost a year late. So uh, to wrap up the history, in 1998, um, Hervé Tisse's uh, partner in starting up this new discipline, uh, Nicholas Curti, passed away. Uh, Hervé uh, then changed it to just molecular gastronomy, dropped the <laughs> physical part. I think that's very honorable that he waited till the guy died and was yeah. like, I'm getting rid of this part. Well, he didn't call it Tissian gastronomy. No, he seems like a pretty cool dude. Yeah. So uh, he also loosened his um, viewpoint a little bit yeah. on pure science and said, you know what, there is a lot of art and soul involved. And so let's just say it's art and science and not one or the other. And it's, um, quote, the art and science of selecting, preparing, serving, and most importantly to me, enjoying food. <laughs> That's right. Because you can get to a point where you're no longer enjoying food. The definition of, of gastronomy was the art of uh, selecting, preparing, serving, and enjoying food. And a lot of people worried when molecular was added to gastronomy right. that you, it was going to take out the last part. Yeah, It's not fun when you apply science to it, but he managed to um, combine the two. And since then, there's a whole just slew of really talented chefs out there working in this field. That's right. And it's delicious food too. I mean, it looks funny and looks interesting and different, but it's it's also yummy. It wouldn't be around at fifty dollars a plate if it wasn't yummy, right? Just because you can make a cube out of mayonnaise doesn't mean people are going to eat it. It's still got to taste like <laughs> right. good, you know, mayonnaise, right? And All if right. you're going to call something snail porridge because it's made out of snail, yeah, it better taste good. Whose was that? Nothing less than magic. You know whose recipe that was? I don't. Was it Wiley Dufresne? I don't know. I know you're a big fan of his, aren't you? Yeah, and I haven't been to WD-50, but next time we're in, uh, we're in New York, dude, we should go. Okay. For sure. Okay. He makes those. I, saw, so I sent you that link, the, the ice cream bagels. Yeah. It's amazing. And it's it's it look like little bagel halves, but they're bagel-flavored ice cream made into the shape of a bagel and then um, dusted airbrush. with like an airbrush. <laughs> yeah. To, to give it the shading of an appearance of being toasted. It's pretty crazy. something. All right, so let's talk it about... It was uh, Heston Blumenthal. Oh, okay. Was the... Uh, Snail porridge. Nice. All right, let's talk uh, chemistry for a second. Uh, if you're a chemist, you're going to classify matter into one of three things. It's going to be an element, a compound, or a mixture. Element can't be broken down any further because it's right, an it's element. It's like oxygen or hydrogen. Sure. Uh, compound is, let's say, oxygen and hydrogen, mm-hmm. H2O. Or Water. Maybe salt. It's a compound, and they are actually chemically uh, combined, but they have properties that are separate and distinct. From their components, from their constituents, right? Right. And then you have a mixture, which is uh, when you combine substances that are not held together chemically, and they can be separated by physical means, like filtering something. Right. And then that's that's some pretty basic stuff, right? Chemistry 101. Um, 
uh, one of, now we start to kind of get into um, molecular gastronomy's interest in, in chemistry. Like all of that is, is taken into account, of course, but um, we get to colloids. Yes. And once we reach colloids, which we just have, we really have entered the realm of molecular gastronomy and food. And a colloid is basically a mixture of two, two substances that are um, they're dispersed but not dissolved in one another. And they can actually be of two different phases or states. So you remember there's three phases of matter. Yes. Technically four, which is plasma, remember, mm-hmm. um, which is liquid so hot it behaves like a gas. Oh, right, yeah. Um, but I don't think they've entered that field with molecular gastronomy yet where they use plasma. Blaze is probably like trying to search that out. <laughs> He's like, plasma, huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's gas, liquid, and solid, right? Uh-huh. And you can um, introduce one into the other. Uh, and create something new. So, for example, if you uh, introduce gas, you disperse it into a liquid, you're going to get what's called foam. For example, whipped cream or beer foam. Yeah, right? or if you're uh, Marcel from Top Chef, he'll put a foam on anything and everything. I like uh, a nice egg wash on some drinks. It's just like egg white. Oh, yeah? It becomes emulsified and turns foamy. Yeah, you're into the cocktails. Oh, yeah. I'm into... Pouring whiskey onto ice. <laughs> I like that too. Well, sure, yeah. I I've got to make Manhattan for you sometime, man. I have mastered it. Really? Oh yeah. I had a fancy cocktail the other night at some place, and it was it was fine, but it's just like, why are you putting all this stuff on top of the whiskey? <laughs> In the end, it's not for me. I, I you I will change your mind with my Manhattan. Remember that cocktail that Yumi had at uh, Momofuku that tasted like a sweat sock? <laughs> yeah, it was um, God, it was, was like the mustard whiskey. Oh. It was a mustard whiskey drink with a pretzel stir, and it sounded really intriguing and awesome on yeah. the menu. But it did. It tasted like not only like a, an old sweaty gym sock, but one that, that was taken off a foot that had some sort of infection. <laughs> yeah, it was so gross. Yeah. And you guys are adventurous, but both of you are like, nah, I can't drink this. I'm sorry, David Chang. Yeah, but, but Momofuku is awesome. We don't want to downgrade that place. Agreed. All right. So I don't think we can. We're not in any kind of no. position to downgrade Momofuku. Exactly. Uh, so uh, colloidal systems, Josh, uh, like you said, involve two phases, um, gas and liquid, or solid and liquid. But when you're talking about food prep, a lot of times there's more than two phases, and that is called a complex dispersed system, that kind of colloidal system, because there's more than two. And this is where it gets a little, like, mind-numbing to me, because... Uh, T said, you know what, let me uh, create a little shorthand for CDS by um, describing these complex systems through abbreviations of phases, uh, letters representing uh, the size of the molecules and what ingredients you're working with, right. and basically break down a recipe into what looks like a math equation. Right. And, I mean, the fact that he created a shorthand for CDS kind of suggests how important it is to molecular gastronomy. Yeah. To to basically create these kind of new and radical textures and, and shapes and things like that. Um, but, yeah, it's a uh, – it, it, for example, the – I'm going to see if I can describe this, okay? Yeah, good luck. But um, the, the, uh, the CDS shorthand for aioli, right? Just basically mayonnaise. Yeah, but it, with of. garlic and lemon and, fancy and um, olive oil. Yeah, um, it's it's O times ten to the negative fifth comma ten to the negative fourth divided by W times D, which is greater than six times seven to the negative seventh. That's an actual 
sort of shorthanded recipe. It is, and frankly, um, I, I I can't make heads or tails of it. I know that the O and the W stands for oil and water, and the fact that there's a forward slash or a division sign means that the oil is dispersed into the water right? rather than the water dispersed into the oil. And then the numbers, like 10 to the negative fifth or 10 to the negative fourth, those are um, shorthand for the size of the particles. Right. In that are that are meant to be introduced into this. So really, if you're Hervé Tis or somebody Hervé Tis has explicitly sat down over the course of five years and explained this to, right. you could look at this and be like, oh, well, yeah, there's Ioli right there, and I, I know exactly how to make this. I know how to make it every time. And it, it, the the surprising thing, don't forget, Hervé Tis was not a chef. It, it, this whole thing started with a failure of to make souffle. Yeah, yeah. He's a physical chemist, right? Yeah. Um, What he came up with stands up across the board. Um, uh, There are literally hundreds of different sauces in the French pantheon of cooking. Yes. He managed to figure out that with his CDS shorthand, with his colloidal dispersion system shorthand, Mm -hmm. right, Um, he can can basically categorize them in, I think, to uh, 24 different groups. 23. 23 different groups. Yeah. Hundreds. Boil down into 23 different groups, and you can make new sauces by going backwards. That's right. And that's one of the exciting things about it is they're sort of reinventing uh, classic recipes yeah. many times. And we should mention, too, I kind of walked over this. Um, one of the most familiar complex disper- uh, dispersed systems that you know of is ice cream. Yeah. Because ice cream is actually very complex. It's um, solid, uh, which is milk fat and milk protein, liquid, which is water, and gas, air, because you whip air through it. Uh, as you're chilling it, and it, in at least two colloidal states. So ice cream is a lot more complex than you might think. Yes. And delicious. Yes. But, and we'll see later on, molecular gastronomists have figured out how to make that very complex delicacy mm-hmm. in a very easy way. Well, Blaze, with his liquid nitrogen. Yeah. So, Chuck, um, we have an idea now that you can apply what looks like math which is really just shorthand, to cooking Mm -hmm. for molecular gastronomy. Um, Other molecular gastronomists have come up with basically new ways of preparing or presenting food, right? Yes, big time. And there's some some are bigger than others. Some are more buzzwords than others, Um, like uh, sous vide cooking. Very popular these days. Yes. Sous vide is when you take, um, sometimes it's a meat, sometimes it's vegetables, uh, and you um, put it in a bag with its spices that you want, and you vacuum seal it, get every single bit of air out, and then you cook that uh, bag of, uh, you know, it's something that won't melt, obviously. Mm-hmm. You cook the bag with the food in it in a water bath that's a very steady temperature but never boiling. It's not like rice-a-roni that you boil in a bag. Right, right. A little more complex than that. It's generally a very low temperature. So, like, if you're going to cook meat, you put it in about 140 degrees and you cook it for... Uh, 30 long, minutes? Yeah, 30. Well, it depends on what it is, but... Yeah, and what it does is, in the end, you retain the, the nutrients more, retain the juices, the flavor, and you get a perfectly even cooking experience. Right. So and you take it out and you flash fry it on both sides to sear it real nice. Well, not flash fry, sear it. And you've just basically made a steak as per molecular gastronomy. Yeah, I like your recipe better, though. It's been working for you? Yeah, oh, yeah. It's nice. Although I do want to try the sous vide. It's just a little pricey to get into. Yeah, because really you need a vacuum sealer. And a, a water oven. 
technically. I mean, I guess you could do it on the stove, but the whole key to sous vide is having a really, really precise, consistent temperature. Yeah. And unless you're really good on your gas range, you're probably not going to be able to do that with just a pot and water. That is correct. What about spherification? Technically, you can do this with just a normal pot of water, right? Yeah, tell me about that. So spherification is basically a way of presenting um, food and kind of turning mundane stuff into delicious little balls of food Yeah, that kind of explode <laughs> in your mouth, right? Yeah, it's got liquid. It's like, uh, remember that gum that used to chew that had the liquid center? Mm-hmm. Freshen up? Yeah, freshen up. <laughs> yeah. Um, that stuff's still around, and it's awesome. Oh, is it? The blue peppermint kind? Oh. It's good. Yes. So basically, um, spherification is, is taking a, it's a gelling reaction between calcium chloride and alginate. And alginate is this gum-like substance that's extracted from seaweed. Yeah. Okay? So, um, you, you take the calcium chloride to make, um, olive spheres, right? Take olive juice, calcium chloride, mm-hmm. and I'm not giving any, um, any amounts. Right. Which are, is very important. Oh, yeah. Like specific amounts. But I'm just giving you a rough idea. Um, you take olive juice and calcium chloride, you mix it together, right? You take alginate and you mix it with water. You allow it to sit overnight. Let the air bubbles rise to the surface and escape, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, the next day you, you make little tiny balls out of the calcium uh, chloride and um, olive juice mixtures. And then very delicately drop it into the um, alginate blend of water. Yeah. And a, a chemical reaction happens, right? Mm-hmm. Apparently, long-chain alginate polymers become linked because of the calcium chloride ions, right? Mm-hmm. A gel is formed. Because you introduce them as little balls, it's, they turn into little gel balls of olive taste. Yeah. And you take them out. No, you drain them, put them in a cold water bath. And then after that, they're set, and you can pop them in your mouth. Yeah, or serve them like uh, caviar. I know um, one recipe that they had in here was for someone that takes apple juice and makes little caviar apple, basically. Uh, yeah. That you would bas- you would probably spoon that on top of some sort of uh, other dish, and all of a sudden these flavors are bursting in your mouth as you bite into it, and it's just a an experience. It is. <laughs> so I guess at this point, molecular gastronomy is food done ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they can flash freeze. That's a big uh, popular thing. They have something now called the uh, the anti griddle, and I've seen Blaze use this too. It's basically cold cooking. Uh, he's into the cold cooking, but it's a griddle, and instead of getting hot, it goes down to what negative thirty degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, and so I've seen Blaze put mayonnaise on there, and then take that little frozen mayonnaise and bath and batter it and fry it. So in the end, you have a mayonnaise. Fried mayonnaise ball. That sounds awesome. And it stays at its in its ball form until you like squish the burger down. Then it. That is awesome. All over. I did not know about that. Pretty cool. I don't know if he does that at Flip, but I've seen him do that on a TV show once. So yeah, with the uh, the anti griddle and flash freezing, it's basically you're you're taking something and that's liquid and making the outside hard. Yeah. And leaving the in the interior the the core is like a, in a liquid state. Oh yeah. So, you know, you do that with, like, chocolate, you get something pretty awesome, right? I would think so. And ch- I guess, Chuck, um, those are some, some fairly common. Or If you go to a molecular gastronomy restaurant uh, around the world, you're going to run into something like that, spherification, which was, I think, um, introduced by a guy named Ferran Adria. In Spain? Yeah, who owns El Bulli in, in Rosas, Spain. Um, he created that. 
but I think it's become kind of standard. If you want to do it more at home, if you want to engage in molecular gastronomy, you could do spherification. You just have to have the yeah. right ingredients. But it's also just kind of using technology. It's like transhuman cooking as well. Um, so, like, if you want to cook duck all orange, right? Yeah. <laughs> duck all duck all orange. <laughs> I got it that time. Classic dish. Um, you would basically roast a duck for two hours. If you're going to do it molecularly, um, you would prefer using a microwave. Yeah, it takes a lot less time, a lot less energy. Yeah, I'm not into it. I, I'm not either. Um, Chuck. Josh. Um, there are some tools. We said one of the great criticisms of molecular gastronomy is this isn't something that most people can do in their kitchen, which is, you know, that's part of cooking. That's what makes cooking soulful. You do it at home. There's a very special room in your house that you cook in. And you teach your kids or your grandkids, and it's a right. family bonding. Exactly. Um, but a lot of the stuff we just talked about, you can't necessarily do in your kitchen. Or can you? The answer, you can. You can go out and buy an <laughs> anti-griddle, right? Yeah, sure. This is something you could have, like, stored in your kitchen. I think they're about 1200 bucks. Okay, so if you were wealthy, you could go out yeah. and buy an anti-griddle. <laughs> yeah, you can get a, wa- a water oven for a few hundred and a, and a good vacuum sealer for about a buck fifty. Yep. So all in on the sous vide, five hundred bucks or less, you can do that. It's not too bad. Yeah. Um. The uh, uh, hypodermic syringe isn't very expensive. You can go down to your local free clinic and pose as a junkie, <laughs> and they'll give you a bunch of them for free. Yeah, I actually use those. They have like the cooking syringes. Yeah. To so inject in, meats. Yeah, inject meats with um with uh, uh marinades. Yeah. Or if you want to do um make the little apple caviar, mm-hmm. this is good to have. It's also very good for extracting uh egg white from egg yolk. Yeah. Um where there's a very famous picture that appears in this article of a cracked egg and a syringe dipping into it that's <laughs> like the visual icon for molecular gastronomy. That was it. Yeah. Um a vacuum machine is very important for sous vide cooking, right? Yeah, can't let any water in there. It's gotta be sealed tight. And then there's the gastrovac, which is kind of like an all-in-one utility for cooking Ching. molecularly. It's about $5,000. Yeah, so it's, uh, what is it, a crock pot, vacuum pump, and a heating plate all-in-one. Yeah. Not bad. And then you got liquid nitrogen, which is what Blaze loves to work with. Right, and we were talking about making um, ice cream actually easier mm-hmm. and creating a, a colloidal system. Um you can, say, follow any recipe for ice cream, and you get the ice cream mixture already. But before you get to the step of actually processing it, you just pour in some liquid nitrogen, yeah. and you stir it, and bada-boom, bada-bing, you have just created ice cream. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, well, another thing I've seen Blaze do is to get um, like on a, a very large uh, serving plate. He'll have a very small, uh, like, let's say, a... Almost like an amuse-bouche, like literally one bite. Mm-hmm. And then he'll have uh, spices sprinkled on the plate. And he'll, at the table, they will uh, pour some liquid nitrogen onto the plate. Mm-hmm. And it starts at like, it's like something out of the abyss. It it stays together and it starts like dancing all over the plate mm-hmm. and collecting the spice. And so it's a clear, you know, it looks like vodka or something. Right. But it's vodka sailing all over your plate until it's collected all the spice into its little sphere. That is awesome. It's very cool. That is very... Where was that? Uh, I saw a YouTube of it. Nice. Yeah, Blaze has done it. Okay. Very inventive guy. And he lives... I mean, he, we should have had him in here, actually. He wouldn't have come in here. Uh, we could probably get in touch with him. All right. Well, Richard Blaze, if you're out there and you have a time machine, get in touch with us because we'd like to have you on this <laughs> I see episode. him walking his dog and his kid all the time over is by Is he living in Decatur? Uh, no, I saw him over near the Edgewood uh, Shopping Center there. Okay. Hard well, to, say hard hi. To... Say hi from me next time. 
Hey, Blaze. Be like, hey, do that thing with that liquid nitrogen thing you do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that dang old goat fell over. That's it? You got anything else, Chuck? Uh, Well, we should say that if liquid nitrogen seems odd, it's really, uh, Blaze likens it to deep frying, except it's cold frying. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, there is a... Is there is a lot of criticism to molecular gastronomy. There's also a lot of um, explanation to it, too, like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Hervé Thies once said, or he pointed out, that um, y- you can cook an egg by adding heat to it. Yeah. You can also achieve the same end by adding alcohol to it. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so, you know, what's the problem? Mm-hmm. Especially if you can change the fa- flavor, create like something new by adding alcohol rather than just cooking. Right. Uh, I think, um, molecular gastronomists kind of think that people who have a problem with it are just kind of looking at it the wrong way. Like you're still achieving the same end. You're just right. using a different process or different means. Right? right. Um, I think it's cool. I wouldn't want to eat the, you know, it's expensive for one. If you go to one of these restaurants, you're going to drop some serious cash. That's true. But, uh, you know, I'm kind of a classicist as well. No, you're not. I don't. No, you're I'm egalitarian. <laughs> I don't want no emulsifiers in my food. Oh, so you're classist upward, not downward. No, I mean, I don't mean a classicist. I mean a classic. Uh, oh, gotcha. Uh, I'm into the classics. Well, you went <laughs> right from right. like very expensive meals into class. Yeah, that's, I, yeah, said I didn't it wrong. realize you were sorry. <laughs> I, I, and what's sad is you said it correctly. I just assumed you Did meant I? classist. No. Yeah. I'm all confused now. Yeah, me too. So that's it for molecular gastronomy. If you want to learn more, um, including a list of some of the uh, churches of molecular gastronomy around the world, you can type in molecular gastronomy in the handy search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. It will pull up a great article. And uh, now, of course, we've just traipsed innocently into the forest of listener mail. That's right, Josh. And this is a sad one. No jokes on this one. Uh, because we have lost a listener, sadly. And her friend Amanda wrote us to tell us about it. Uh, Hi, guys and Jerry. Hope you're keeping well. I am unfortunately the bearer of bad news. Uh, One of Stuff You Should Know's biggest fans, Lynn Volos, passed away from a particularly virulent cancer a few days ago. And I think we got this uh, letter last week, so Mm mid-March. My friendship with Lynn uh, epitomized all that is new in this century. I was a full-time student, with no money, needed some entertainment in the evenings in early 2001, and I had just read a book that delighted me. Uh, the publisher set up a message board, so off I went and joined a rabble-rousing community of women from all over the world. Uh, Lynn was one of the first to welcome me, and in the ensuing decade would often give me the keys to the bus, so to speak, when she was away or indisposed to keep the peace. Because, you see, Lynn was a peacemaker. She must have seen in me a glimmer of her ability to relax frayed nerves, bring people together in crisis and joy, and be a center of calm and still water during many of the storms we have weathered individually and as a community. Uh, Lynn lived a life that I doubt many of us could imagine. Uh, She discovered her true self later in life and moved from the deep south to the northeast to be with her darling Nikki, uh, facing hardships from the life to which she had given so much. Lynn gave more as a mother to Jessica and Becca, a beloved auntie, as a caregiver to seniors and special needs kids, and to her wonderful animals that gave her so much happiness. Uh, just a short time ago, Lynn was diagnosed with cancer, and with the bravest of faces, she fought on until she could no longer. I never met Lynn in life, actually, but I cannot imagine the last 10 years of my life without her in it. Not only have I lost a friend, our community has lost a beloved presence, 
And Stuff You Should Know is minus one evangelist who got a treat with her last almost hour-long show last week. Uh, Lynn loves Stuff You Should Know, I think, more for the rational, measured, and well-balanced way you all present information without judgment and controversy. Uh, so many traits that you all share with Lynn, and I will think of her whenever I hear, hey, welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and with me, as always, is Charles W. Chuck Bryant. As always, your friend, Amanda. Very sad. That is sad. Thank you, Amanda. And I asked Amanda if there was any kind of charity that her family might want us to mention. And she said yes, and she wrote her family and said that um, if anyone was moved by this, that you can make a donation to the Animal Rescue Fund of Mississippi at www.arfms.com. So a great charity as well. Uh, well, thank you again, Amanda, for letting us know. And rest in peace, Lince Volos. Um, although we never knew you, we, uh, we're glad you listened to us. Thank yeah. you for listening. Part of the, part of the stuff you should know family, for sure. And we hope that, uh, you can still get us wherever you are, wherever you may be. If you, uh, want to let us know about something good, something sad, something neutral, we always want to hear it. You can send it in an email to stuffpodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you